know, Jesus Christ, on the night before he was killed, said some of the most significant things that have ever been uttered by a human being. Our Savior moved to pray to the great God of the universe, his Father, and he lifted up his heart, not just to his God, but he reached out into the future to a very special people in a very special way. And because he did that, you and I are here at the Feast of Tabernacles keeping this feast in this hall. We observe the Feast of Tabernacles because God commands us to do this. But it's in the intent of the Father and of Jesus Christ that we personally fully understand just exactly what the feast means in all aspects, in all ways, in every factor of our lives to understand why we keep the feast, why we are here observing this observance. It's crucial for us to do that. Let's look at these words that I was talking about here in my introduction, these wonderful words that reach out past the Father into the very future to you and me today. Turn to John, the 17th chapter, the Gospel of John, and let's look at this. And we recognize that John 17, of course, is the true Lord's Prayer, as we have called it. And Jesus spoke these words in verse 1, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that your Son may also glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now the purpose of God and Jesus Christ is to provide eternal life to mankind. That's what he said. This is eternal life, that they may know you. It's their purpose to provide that, and it's not just to a small select group of people, but when you know and understand the entire plan for man, it reaches out beyond just those few people in this end time into the very future for all of mankind. This is their purpose. It's their overall plan. But it's based more on a tightly constructed plan involving you and me today. Look at verse 9 of this prayer. I pray for them, I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So it isn't just a matter of what uh, uh, Jesus Christ was asking then for those individuals that were in that room for, uh, with him after the Passover had been eaten, after the feet had been washed, but it was beyond them. It was to go into the future, talking about you and me here today. Now, Jesus makes a distinction. He makes a separation. And now notice this further in verse 16. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Jesus said his people, those God gave him, would not be of this world. And interestingly, he used the word world 19 times in that prayer. This was not going to be a... A, uh, uh, a prayer that was going to be just for the apostles and they were going to go out uh, into the world and just preach the gospel. It had to make a separation. It had to make a distinction. It had to reach out to something else that was bigger than just those in the individ individuals that were there. This word world that he used 
was cosmos in the Greek, cosmos. And he did not, did not use the Greek word for world, oi, uh, which is pronounced oikomene. Oikomene, he used cosmos. Oikomene means the land and the earth and the planet itself. It has indications of that which we stand on, uh, that which we see growing around us, the, the trees, that which we see in the sky, the stars, the sun, the moon. He used the word cosmos, and that means the adorning of world affairs, the aggregate of things, all combined with the, so the society of man, the sociology of man, the earthly goods, the endowments, the riches, the advantages, and the pleasures. That's what the word he was using when he said world. This world that he was referring to, that he was not praying for the land or he wasn't praying for the sky or the moon or, or, or the, the ground we're standing on. He was praying for a, a society, a sociability, a, a expression of, of life as man lives it, as he associates with himself, with one another. And this has everything to do with mankind as far as, as the way he's um, um, appointed, his clothes, and the way he treats himself uh, um, richly or royally, and the way he actually interferes with other people's lives. This is, this is the, the meaning of the word world, the cosmos, and it's important for us to understand that. Because as we attend this Feast of Tabernacles, or we're in our feast settings, we obviously are endowed with a lot of earthly goods, a lot of riches, a lot of advantages. But attending the Feast of Tabernacles and keeping second tithe is something that is, is uh, important to us uh, because we can buy good food, we can buy good wine, and we can see many, many things in our, our individual feast sites uh, that are pleasurable. Uh, those of us who have children take our children to different affairs and to different uh, occasions at the feast, and it's very pleasurable. And we do have those advantages. But why are we not of the world, as he said there. I pray for them, uh, for the, uh, I, I do not pray for the world, but for those you have given me. Why is that important for us to understand that, that we're not of this society? Does Christ provide an answer? And does that answer that he gives us, if we fully understand it, have impact on you and me today as we understand what the Feast of Tabernacles is all about? an impact that will change how you and I live our lives from this feast onward. Because this feast is a mark. This feast is important to us because when we are done with the feast, when this feast is over with, we are going to go into a world, this world, this, this not the cosmos, the, uh, we're not going to go into just the, the physical world, but we're going to go into the cosmos, I should say, that is going to be affecting us with our lifestyles as, as society normally affects us. An impact on how we're going to live our lives from this day forward. And Jesus does give us that answer. Look at in verse 17. As he continued to pray, he said, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they may also be sanctified by the truth. So, that is the answer. 
That is what you and I need to understand about his answer, is that we are sanctified, but how are we sanctified? We're sanctified by God's truth, by his word. And his word, this word, is true. Part of that truth is the keeping of the Feast of Tabernacles. You and I keep the truth by observing the Feast of Tabernacles. Why? Because God commands it. Back here in the Old Testament, and as we go through into the New Testament, we see, yes, indeed, they were keeping all the holy days. And so we do keep the feast, and because we do keep it, and because we are Christians, and we'll be talking about that a little bit later on in the sermon, because we are Christians, we will always keep God's word. We always honor his name. Now, the word sanctified that is used here, that Christ used, is the Greek word hagiazo, and it's spelled H-A-G-I-A-Z-O, and it means holy, but better defined as separate from profane things and dedicated to God. So if we are holy, we are separated from things that would taint us. The world, maybe, the cosmos that we are around us, that affect us, that pull at us as we live our daily lives, as we go out and, and unfortunately have to compete in this world. We are separate from that. We are dedicated to God, and because we are dedicated to God, we will not take part in the cosmos. We will not be part of that world. We will be doing God's will, following his word. We're not to be profane. In this case, it means being disrespectful to God. But how does that happen? How does that happen to us? How can we as human beings be separate from the world when we live in the world, that we're not disrespectful to God, that we're not disrespectful to his word? How can that work? How does that, how does that happen? By God's truth. The true word of God. It says in verse 17, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And the word truth here, aletheia, means reality lying at the base of what you see, the very essence, the very core of a matter. Well, what does that mean? You know, uh, truth to us is, well, yeah, it's true, and we go to a courtroom, we're supposed to swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. We don't swear, of course. We affirm that what our word is going to be true. But what is this? Why, why is it the very essence, the very core of a matter? What is the very essence and core of truth? Again, God's word. God defines what truth is, not what man defines it as, but what God defines it as. But how does that happen? How does truth happen? How, does, how, how do we uh, live according to what God says we are to be living? This word aletheia, how does that happen to us? We need to look a little bit more at this word sanctification, this word that means to separate, this, this word hagiadzo, uh, defined as separate from profane things and dedicated to God. How are we sanctified? Well, we're sanctified by the truth. But, all right, the truth I know is true, but how does that work? How does that work in a Christian? 
a lot of people are, say that they follow the truth. Um, in my job, I work each day with um, many, many of the commentaries and many of the lexicons, and there is truth in those things. There's a little error also. You have to be very careful when you look at man's approach to the Bible. But when you look at the majority of what they're saying that's based upon Scripture is the truth. And so we have to be very careful that if we're sanctified by the truth, that it is a definition that God gives, not what man gives. Because truth can be cold and sterile and empty, and uh, you can have head knowledge, and I, I, I understand that about the commentaries, people that wrote them many, many years ago, and they're far smarter than I am. Let me tell you, I, I've never put a, a, a volume together of my understanding of the Bible, and here you have these individuals who have a total different appearance of uh, uh, recognition of God, have written 10, 15 volumes, all of the Bible, and then a whole bunch of other works with it. And that's all, you know, based upon God's Word, the truth. But it's not true. They do not understand, but you and I have, and we don't have that intellect, we understand what the truth is. And I don't mean to be complicated about this, brethren, but one of the things that we have to understand is what Jesus Christ was saying impacts you and me today. And that's why we're at the feast. Because God has a plan for man, and we are that plan. We are God's plan for a, a future time, and we are fulfilling in our role as Christians, keeping the Feast of Tabernacles as part of that plan. So it's important for us to understand maybe a little bit of the, the basis of what Jesus Christ was praying here and how that Passover prayer impacts us today as we are here at the Feast of Tabernacles. Big distinctions being made here. A really big distinction. Again, let's go back to how are we sanctified? How are we made holy? Look back in John, the 14th chapter. John 14, and these are more Passover scriptures. Why is this man doing a Passover sermon at the Feast of Tabernacles? Because it isn't a Passover sermon, brethren. It is a Feast of Tabernacles sermon based upon a appeal to God by Jesus Christ for you and me today to be here where we are. John, the 14th chapter, and verse 16. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that it may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. That's a very important, very important distinction there, brethren. Jesus says, it will be with you and will be in you. So how does that work? Well, we'll talk about that a little bit later as we get into the sermon when we talk about sanctification. This process that makes you a Christian, this process that separates you from the rest of the world. The Apostle Peter gives us a, another marker that we need to look. Turn over to 1 Peter, 1 Peter, the first chapter, 1 Peter 1, and 
You'll start in verse 15. 1 Peter 1, verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. The interesting thing that Peter was doing was he was uh, quoting from the book of Leviticus, and many places in the Old Testament, you can, you can look this up yourself, that phrase, be you holy for I am holy, and if you've got a concordance, you look at that, you will see how many times that God used that for carnal Israel. And he said, I am with you, be holy because I am holy. And God was there, and while God was with them, while he was with them in the, in the pillar and the, of uh, fire by night and by the cloud by day, the, the pillar of the cloud by day, God was with them. And that's why he told them on occasion, if you had to go out and um, do your natural things, uh, take a shovel and go outside of the camp and dig a trench and cover it up because the Lord your God walks with you among you. And so they were to be holy, and he gave them a process of, of cleaning themselves, and the process of eating, a process of living in association with one another that was concentrated on the concept that he dwelt with them. And he was always there when the ark came, or the, uh, the, the, the uh, tribes of Israel came to a halt and they set up the tabernacle. And they, when it was set up, God, the presence of God in the cloud came and dwelt within the Holy of Holies. And he was saying, I am with you. And Jesus Christ was talking about sanctification, he was talking about being holy. And when he had prayed to, the, or, or had talked to them in John 14, he said that he would, is, the Holy Spirit is with you and shall be in you, meant simply that at that particular time, the apostles that were in that room did not have God's Holy Spirit. But the Spirit was with them because Jesus Christ was with them. But he said, it would now then be in you. With you and in you. And so, Peter was talking about and quoting here from the Old Testament about God being with us. And the word he used there was hagios in, in the Greek. But he was quoting from the Hebrew, and the Hebrew word that was used, that he was quoting from, in, was kadosh. Kadosh in the Hebrew, holy, hagios, in the Greek, holy. And literally means, God is with you. God with us. But we are to become sanctified. And the word sanctified, as we, we were looking at before, is hagiazo, same, same root word off of hagios, becomes hagiazo, meaning as sanctified, and we're sanctified by God being in us, so that means through the Holy Spirit that's given to us, we are not just any longer hegeos, God being with us, but we're hegeadzo, God being in us. And God being in us makes us Christians, brethren. 
We're now Christians. And we'll be talking about that here in just a second or two when we, we talk in, about Romans, the 8th chapter, which defines the Christian. But it's important to understand that Jesus Christ was talking so clearly about being sanctified by the word of truth and then going back and saying that the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, was going to be gift, excuse me, given. And because it was given, it wasn't just a matter of God being with us. God is going to be in us, with you and in you. Let's turn over to, uh, to Romans the 8th chapter. Romans the 8th chapter, and let's look at this. Because to become hagiadzo, uh, we have to have the Spirit of God in us. And in Romans the 8th chapter is probably the best definition of a Christian, and we, we have heard that for many, many years. In Romans the 8th chapter, in verse 9, Romans 8, verse 9. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he's not his. Isn't that a definition? That's a wonderful definition, brethren, and it's ironclad. If you do not have the Spirit of Christ, if you do not have God's Holy Spirit dwelling in you, you are none of His, i.e., you're not a Christian. And to be a Christian, you have to have God's Holy Spirit dwelling in you. It has to be hagiadzo. Not just hagios, God with you, as God was with Israel. It's going to be now God dwelling in you, and you in through Christ. There's a progression that Paul was talking about here about that issue of being a Christian and having God's Holy Spirit. Look at verse 14. Verse 14, it says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. In verse 16, The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then were heirs, heirs of God, and joined heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. You see that progression, brethren? It isn't just a matter of having God's Holy Spirit in us. We have to express that spirit. Hagiadzo, in, in, in the Greek, uh, uh, talks about a, uh, not just having God's Holy Spirit, but working with that spirit, that spirit working in us, we yielding to that spirit. And because we do that, God identifies us as His sons, His children. Wonderful scriptures here, brethren, in, in Romans, the 8th chapter. And if you're not familiar with that, you do Bible studies on that, especially, you know, as you go through the, the Feast of Tabernacles. And after the feast is over, in just a few months from now, and, you know, about maybe five months from now, we're going to start to pass or, Passover all over again. And then again, John 17, that prayer becomes very important to us. Why is that? Can you really have... The Feast of Tabernacles without the Passover? Can you really have the Passover without keeping the Feast of Tabernacles? Well, that's been a long, long time discussion among people. And you say, oh, yeah, well, we'll, keep, we'll, we'll, we'll uh, pick and choose what we're going to keep. Uh, some people keep the Passover and say all the rest of that stuff. Get rid of the Days of Unleavened Bread. And, you know, after, well, maybe Pentecost. We'll throw that in because uh, that had something to do with the, the uh, New Testament. Wasn't it back there in, in Acts, uh, the, the second chapter? Oh, yeah. yeah, so we'll keep Pentecost because that sounds, you know, New Testament-ish. You can't 
pick and choose. You can't cherry pick. Passover is bound to the Feast of Tabernacles. You and I need to understand that as we observe the, feast, the Passover, that Jesus Christ's sacrifice is the doorway for us to have the Holy Spirit to be sanctified, to go just simply from God working with us, calling us to the Father and, and to Jesus Christ. And through His blood, we are given access and actually impregnated with the Holy Spirit and we become His. And the Passover delineates that and we keep the Days of Unleavened Bread and we go through the Days of Unleavened Bread which pictures putting sin out of our lives and living sinless lives during that exercise, but we just don't separate the Days of Unleavened Bread from the Passover. We go through the Days of Unleavened Bread with the Passover, all right? And we're heading on our little journey about 50 days down, down the pike to the day of Pentecost, which is another important aspect of the Passover in the days of unleavened bread. Because we have done this, and as it pictures, the giving of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost shows that. But you don't stop there, and that's it. Well, now we're Christians, and that's all we have to do. No, there is more to the plan of God. And so we take our Passover, we take our Days of Unleavened Bread and our Pentecost experience, and we move to the Feast of Trumpets, which is, of course, representative God, Jesus Christ, God sending Jesus Christ back to establish the kingdom. The Day of Atonement, which means all the world is now brought at one to God through the fact that these people kept the Passover, they kept the days of unleavened bread, received God's Holy Spirit, are resurrected, and in that moment of atonement, that atonement to the family of God, to God Himself, and we are a part of that, but no longer flesh, no longer blood, but of the family of God, and the day of atonement comes, which opens the, is a gateway and it opens the door to the Feast of Tabernacles, which pictures a millennium, a millennium ruled by Jesus Christ and his brothers and sisters, the saints of God. And we go through that exercise, bringing along all of those holy days with us, the experiences of those holy days, and where are we heading for? That last great day, which <laughs> we go back to where we started this sermon, about all of the world, all of the cosmos, and you and I are part of it. This is what we're sanctified for. This is the reason why you and I observe the Feast of Tabernacles, is because we are part of that plan for man. It's a big picture, and it all comes down to that prayer that Jesus Christ made for you and I, so we understand. So Christ came into this world to establish a people that he would send into the world who would faithfully follow God's true word. Back in John, the 17th chapter, and we'll pick up where we left off before, John 17, that prayer, in verse 18, it says, As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And he's looking at, at this particular moment of, uh, of time, 
Well, you know, apostles weren't even converted at this time. They were with God, and God was with them through Jesus Christ being with them, but they were not yet sanctified, made holy by the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. That had not been given to them. But he says, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. It's a very important thing for a very important distinction, brethren. Jesus sent, was sent into the world for a very special purpose, preaching the gospel, revealing the kingdom of God. Jesus sends his church into the world, and we find the purpose is the same. The same purpose, the same reason to preach the gospel, to preach what we understand to be the gospel, the salvation through Jesus Christ, the the coming of God's kingdom. That purpose is exactly the same. Then he allowed himself to be killed. He allowed himself to be brutally murdered so that all true Christians throughout all time could be successful in accomplishing that purpose. It had to happen. Jesus Christ had to die. That blood had to be shed. And that prayer had to be made for all of us today through that sacrifice. Verse 19, And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone, but for those who will believe in me through their word. Oh, brethren, you see that? You see the reaching out into the future? praying to his Father and speaking to them and at him and speaking to us today. I do not pray for these alone, but those who are going to believe through the preaching of these men I'm going to send out tonight, once they are converted, once they are there, they're going to go out and do this. Jesus Christ turned the whole operation over to man. But not just man, to Christian men at that time, and they preached, and you and I sit here. I give the sermon. You're listening to this sermon because of that prayer right there. Because they faithfully followed what Jesus Christ said. But they didn't faithfully follow him right away. If you remember correctly, the rest of the story in John is that when Jesus Christ was arrested, they all fled from him. Every last one of them abandoned Jesus Christ. He died, betrayed, abandoned. And he knew it was going to happen. He understood that completely. But yet he did it. And once that happened, and the Spirit came and they were sanctified, the Spirit was given on the day of Pentecost, it was an entire different scenario. These men went out and preached the gospel, and they went to all the world and preached that gospel, baptizing, and they died martyrs' death. Practically every last one of those individuals that were in that room died a martyr's death except for John. And because they did that, I'm able to speak to you, and you're able to hear that, because you have the Spirit of God, just as he promised here, that would take place. If you did not have that Spirit, you would not be sitting there. If I did not have the Spirit, I would not be standing here. We would be doing something entirely different. 
And I'll tell you one thing you would not be doing, and that is keeping the Feast of Tabernacles. Is the truth about God's plan of salvation revealed by these holy days, including the Feast of Tabernacles, critical to us today? Is it vital? And does Jesus Christ show us that it is critical? The entire story of that first Passover, and especially Jesus Christ's prayer, brethren, is centered in becoming and being one with the Father. It's necessary. Without what Christ did, without that process working in us, we could never be at one with the Father. And, but it's important and critical for Christians to be at one with the Father. Let's look at that as we go through the rest of the sermon. Verse 21. We'll pick it up again in verse 20. I pray not for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one. As you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Who are all of them, brethren? Who are these all? Just these 11 men in this room? No, if you look at back in what was, he was talking about, what he was praying, he said, for, not for these alone, but for all of those who will believe because what they taught about. This is us. All of us are one. We're one with those men that he sent out then. We are sent out to do it today, our job to preach the gospel. All of us are one, individually, severally, as a group, as a society of the church. We are all one as Christ is one with the Father, and the Father is one with, with uh, Jesus, that the world may understand that you sent me, and it is our job to go to the world and tell them. The Father sent Jesus Christ to tell you, you need to be keeping the Feast of Tabernacles. That's your job. That's my job. And that's what they need to hear. And we're doing that, brethren. We're doing that. And the Living Church of God has not backed away from that one bit. It is doing that job. A little more Greek here. The word Jesus used, the word one, is transliterated uh, as heis, H-E-I-S, uh, and it means one. As in one, only one, numerically one. It's vital to understand that he did not use the word one that can be translated as, and this is a mouthful in the Greek, homathomadon. Homathomadon, and it means uh, with one accord. He wasn't saying that we're all of one accord. Uh, we all think alike. That's us. You know, we all think alike. He didn't say that at all. What he was saying that we are one. One. Together. One. Not just you over here and you over here. And I think, you know, we get along pretty good. So we're of one accord. That is not what he was using here. He's talking about a word of one mind, one purpose, one passion, one way, and only one way. Christ said we are to be literally one as God the Father and He are one. A wonderful mystery here that it can happen. And it can only happen through the Holy Spirit that's given to us. That Holy Spirit 
that is the spirit that you and I partook of in the Passover this year, earlier this year, when we ate together of the body of Christ. We ate of the bread that symbolized his broken body. We sipped of the, of the wine that symbolized his blood. We ate oneness together. And that's what that Passover is about. It isn't just a matter of an individual thing that you and I do. It's a, yes, it's individual, but it is collective. We come together with one mind, with one purpose, with one feeling, uni unified, and the word is, is heis. One more point that we need to make in this prayer. Look at verse 23, brethren. Verse 23. I and them, and you and me, that they, again, this is this collective thought, this isn't just these 12, 11 men that were in the room that he was praying for, that they, all of us, the ones that are going to be converted, the ones that are going to respond to the preaching of the, the word that was given to them, that they would be sent out from the day of Pentecost, it was down the road several days, uh, 50 days down the road, that they may be perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. To know and to understand, brethren, that our purpose for being at the Feast of Tabernacles is to pull together as one people one mind, one purpose, one thought, one, one whole uh, uh, change in purpose and, and accomplishment in life because the Father loves us. He loves us. And we are to love as they loved because they were of one mind and we are of their mind and we are to be of one mind. Yes, we are to be of one accord. But it goes beyond that. And so we sit at the Feast of Tabernacles. We think about the Feast of Tabernacles being a time of feasting, being a time of, of intense um, fellowship if we're attending the feast. For those who are not attending the feast and are listening to this in their homes or maybe in a small little group, one or two of you in a home because you could not make the feast, and you look over at George or, or Alice, and you have that intense feeling that only a Christian can have through the Holy Spirit, and though you are far away from a feast site, <laughs> you're one. You're one with me, as I am one with you. And it isn't just my words coming to your ears, and me looking at a camera, and you looking back at that camera. It isn't just that. It goes beyond that. My dear brothers, This isn't that sloppy, sentimental, Pentecostal, kicked in the stomach thing. This is what our Savior said to us. Here, we are to love one another with that closeness that reflects that 
emulates what Jesus Christ was talking about here. This man was getting ready to die. You know, greater love than this, and a man should lay down his life for his friends. And then he proceeded to do that, and he set the example for you and me to do that. Why? Just so we can go through some mechanical thing of the Feast of Tabernacles or the mechanical thing of the, of, of the Passover in the Days of Unleavened Bread? No, brethren, because it's all based on love. And we'll be talking about that a little bit further on in, towards the end of the sermon. Not only Christians are to be one, as they are on one, they are to be made perfect in that, whole, that oneness. For the specific purpose, one specific purpose. A little more Greek here. The word made perfect that he used is teleo, T E L E I O, teleo, and it means to carry through completely, to accomplish, to finish, to bring to an end. But to finish what? To be made perfect, to be Finished in one. What does that mean? What does that, what does that amount to? But I just got done telling you. We are to be made perfect in love. It's all about love. It'll always be about love. The love that Jesus Christ had for his creation. The one who reached down into the muck and marrow and fashioned Adam from the red clay. Put him together in love and loved him and loved mankind despite the fact that mankind rejected all of that, and came down to this point where he emptied himself of all the kenosis, completely emptied himself, and died for us in love. That's what it's about. All of this took place, brethren, by Jesus Christ up to this point. You go back and you look at, uh, at the whole Passover story starting in, in John 13. You go through 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. And what followed as far as the crucifixion was, con- con- crucifixion was concerned was about love. And this being made perfect in one. I want to talk about that a little. I want to explain that, what that means, because what basically Jesus Christ is talking about here, being brought to a conclusion or being uh, completed and being finished, brought to an end, means he was starting something completely different with this process. He was starting a new creation, if you want to put it that way, because Paul didn't have any difficulty with that, incidentally. And we'll be talking about that. The creative act that Jesus Christ is speaking about here, this teleuo, is about fashioning from human flesh a people capable of expressing the kind of godly love that the Father and the Son who dwell in them have. Look at 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter. Fashioning a people who are willing to love. 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, and verse 16. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone 
is in Christ. Flip back to Romans, the eighth chapter. What, 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 what is the definition of a Christian? Jesus Christ, the Spirit of Christ living in him. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You see that, brethren? A Christian is a new creature, fashioned to be new, to be different. Not of the world, not of, of all the circumstances that you see around you, all the pain, all the woe, all the agony, the wars, the brutality, the perversion that is mankind. A Christian isn't that. A Christian is a new creature, a new creature, a new creation. All things have passed on all the old things that you used to be, all the things that you were before God said, George, Alice, come here. And you came. And you followed through. And you were baptized. And hands were laid upon you. And the Spirit of God was given to you, the very sperm of God, as it says in 1 John. The Spirit, the seed of God, went in you. You became something new. A new creature. A new creation. Why is it important for us to understand? Why do, what does it mean to us today here at the Feast of Tabernacles as you keep it? It's all centered in Jesus' concluding words in John, the 17th chapter. If you turn back over there. John 17 and verse 26. We'll begin in, in verse 25. O righteous Father, the word, world has not known you but I have known you, and these have known you, that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love for which, which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. There is the fulfillment. That is the reason we are Christians, and that is... The only reason why you can attend the Feast of Tabernacles and understand what I'm saying. If you did not have this, if this, this fulfillment of this promise and this prayer, this answered prayer, all this would be just words to you. Just kind of gobbledygook, just kind of, well, what is that man-man babbling about? You know, as they said about, about the apostles on when the Spirit was given on that day of, of Pentecost, they said, what are these babblers? They're all drunk. They didn't understand. They couldn't understand. The world cannot understand yet. But because of what God is doing with you and has done for you, and bringing you to understand what love is, because of Christ living in you, this whole process, someday they will understand you. They will understand me. That new creature that is being fashioned in you. And what is your condition? Old? Infirm? Are you watching this, barely able to get over to the DVD and plug in the, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, the little disc? Barely able to creak back and sit down? You is what he's talking about. You understand 
the words that I'm speaking. Those of you who are much more energetic. Those of you who are, are still full of verve and life, who are, are listening to this, and you have to maybe learn a few more lessons yet. These words are to you. That Christ dwells in you, and because you understand that, and you're keeping this Feast of Tabernacles in whatever manner and shape you are, you're a new creature, a new creation. Old things about you have long passed away, and you understand what I'm saying. If you have a little sticky and you're walking in the Bible, just put it there in John, because I want to flip back and forth to show you something different about Revelation, the third chapter. I'm not just talking to you as Christians. You're not just Christians. You are Philadelphian Christians. And there is a difference between just being a Christian and being a Philadelphian Christian. God has given you a special calling, of a special understanding of your relationship to the gospel, your relationship that is different. Mr. Meredith calls it a fire in the belly. <laughs> I always wonder about that. Back in my former lifestyle, I had a fire in my belly and I had to take Malox to put it out. But I understand what a fire in the belly is. A desire that seems so lacking in this world. People who call themselves Christian indeed are, but feel that the gospel message has been preached and Mr. Armstrong did that, blah, blah, blah. You know all of those things? But you're not that way. You hear this and you know that the gospel must be preached and you know that you must do this and you must be a part of it, no matter how it is, even if I just have to get up in the morning and pray, Father, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. If that's all that you can do. But you are a Philadelphian. You are a Philadelphian Christian, and you're going to hear what I'm talking about here. God declared, or Jesus, I should say, has declared God the Father's name to us so that we will understand this message to us. His Philadelphian remnant. It says in, in Revelation, the third chapter, verse 8, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. We as Philadelphians are sanctified by the truth, written to our minds by the Holy Spirit. It dwells in us. And that's what it says here in John 17, and uh, verse 17. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. You see that, brethren? You see what Jesus Christ prayed for? And you see what Philadelphia stands for? They stand for that truth. They stand for that concept of preaching the truth, of being sanctified so that they can preach that truth. And as Philadelphians, we do not deny his name. And that's what Jesus Christ prayed in that last verse in, in, in chapter 17. I have declared to them your name and will declare it. And the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And here we see where it says that we have kept the truth and have not denied God's name. Almost like Jesus Christ 
was praying about a Philadelphian, doesn't it? Almost sounds that way. And if you are this way, you are a Philadelphian, you are fulfilling that prayer. You are fulfilling the prayer of not denying his name and keeping his truth and declaring that truth to the world. Earlier I said that Jesus was reaching into the future to a very special people in a very special way for a very special purpose. Let's look at these people. Paul describes them, again, going back to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, the 6th chapter. 2 Corinthians, the 6th chapter. In verse 16. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. And as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Eternal. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Eternal Almighty. Interesting, brethren interesting, in that he said what agreement has the temple of God? For you are the temple of the living God. The word that he used as far as temple is concerned, brethren, is not the word that talks about the facade of things. Not the arch, it's not the, the decoration, it's not the podium. It's that word for temple, or the, you know, the pillars and the portico and that. But he was, that word have been hiraion, meaning the facade of the temple, or what the temple building is. He used the word temple, and here the word is naos, N-A-O-S. And it means the shrine that is within. The shrine that was within. What does that mean? Well, what was the place that was within the temple that was considered to be a shrine, a very holy place. And a shrine is called a holy place. This was a holy place within the holy temple. What God, or what Paul was talking about, what God, Jesus Christ, inspired Paul to say here is, do you not know that you are the naos, the holy of holies, where God dwells? God dwelt in the Holy of Holies. We, as we were talking about the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, and when they parked, when they came to a halt in their marching, God came into the temple or into the, into the uh, tabernacle and dwelt behind the veil in the Holy of Holies. Now, we are designed not to be just a building we are designed to be the place where God dwells, brethren. The temple, the naos, the holy of holies, is where you are, who you are. And pillars, as we find out, in, as it says, that Philadelphians will be pillars in the temple. And again, the word temple is naos. We will be tiller, pillars in the temple of God. Very special meaning to Christians, very special meaning to Philadelphia Christians. But he 
defines from the Old Testament that, that Paul uses and pulls out of the Old Testament and defines this very special calling we have of God dwelling with us, walking among us, being our God, being and we shall be his people, you've got to go back and relate again to John, the 17th chapter, and that prayer where he said we would be a very special people, a very special called out people to, to God. And he said because of this, he prayed that we would not be a part of the world, that we would come out from that world, be separate from the world, and that we would not touch anything that was unclean about the cosmos. We would not be a part of the cosmos. We'd be separated from the cosmos. We'd be sanctified from the cosmos, separated from it, and given His Holy Spirit to be fulfilling what Paul was talking about here. Where he says, I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters. You shall be my sons and daughters. That's Old Testament stuff here. He's talking about that concept, and that was always in God's mind to come up with a people, Christians, that would be his sons and daughters. But he gets a little more specific, as John gets a little more specific, and talks about Philadelphia and who Philadelphia is. I want to go on a little bit more from what Paul was talking about because we understand that the Bible is written not in chapters and verses, but was one continuous story. The book of, of 2 Corinthians was certainly not divided into, into chapters. How do we know that? Because he says in verse 18 of, of, uh, of chapter 6, I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Eternal Almighty. Therefore... Chapter 7, verse 1. Having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And so we know that this continues on. It's the same kind of a continuation of when you read the book of Romans and we read Romans, the seventh chapter, where Paul really rails at himself and talks about, you know, I'm, I, I should do this and I don't, and I, I should do that and I don't, and all this. What sort of a man am I? And we have a tendency to stop there and thinking, oh, woe is me. Oh, I'm really, I'm, I'm like Paul. I'm just so rotten, so terrible. And never realize that you should have continued reading into chapter 8, and you would see that despite all of that, yes, but God has given you a Holy Spirit, and He's giving it for a reason, and that kind of mitigates a lot of the dumb things that we do, because we have the God, God's Holy Spirit, and we were able to repent. And so you don't ever read Romans 7 without finishing up and reading Romans 8. Defeating. And we don't need to defeat ourselves, brethren. And it's the same thing here. We, we continue on and pick up what Paul was really trying to tell the Corinthians, these Corinthian people who were struggling in a primitive society or pagan society with absolute depravity, very similar to walking the streets of our big cities today, except maybe even worse because they had all that... Well, maybe not worse. I guess we've got all that pagan claptrap in our big cities today too, don't we? But he was giving them this hope that goes beyond just uh, words. He was showing them that there is a far better purpose, a far higher purpose for us. Two words we need to look at in, in, in uh, chapter 7, verse 1. 
we need to understand is, if we're going to understand what this Feast of Tabernacles is really about, why we are attending, why we are keeping the Feast, Notice the word perfecting holiness, where it says, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. The word perfecting is epitelio, and it means to bring to an end, to accomplish, to perfect, to execute, to complete. It's very similar to the word that we were talking about before, epitelio. This is a much stronger word, and it brings much stronger definition, but the definition is applied not just to the fact that we are to complete, we are to complete holiness. The word holiness. Whole new word. So we've gone through hagios, holy, as it says there in Second Peter, be you holy as I'm holy. Hagios meaning God with you sanctification, to be sanctified by, through the Holy Spirit, as it says in, in, in John 14, the Gospel of John 14, that talks about uh, becoming holy because God is in you, and the word is hegiadzo. This word holiness here is different. The word is hegiasune, H-A-G-I-O-S-U-N-E, whole new word. And the word holiness, hegiasune, means majestic, majesty. We are to perfect majesty. Wait a minute. I, I, I understand from the Bible that only God is majestic. Only God has majesty. He's asking us that we should perfect bring to a completion, to execute, to accomplish, bring to an end, majesty. Brethren, do you hear that? Do you hear what Paul is telling these, these Corinthians who were all messed up and, and all these things that they were doing wrong and the struggles that they were going through? He was saying, you who are holy, God is with you, God is in you, you are now to bring that holiness, hagios, hagiazo, hagiosene, bring it to an end. We have to bring it to an end. We are to bring what we are through the Word of God, through the Spirit of God, to an end, to a conclusion, what God has set mankind to become. What He has set not only Christians to become, but what He has set Philadelphian Christians to become. We are to fulfill our calling. And our calling is majesty, and if God only is majestic, what is our end as the children as the sons and daughters of God. To become as God is God. As Jesus Christ is God. That fully explains, brethren, more fully explains, in our final scripture today, over in Daniel, the seventh chapter of Daniel. We have a calling that is beyond any belief, brethren, by any means, by any shape, by any manner, that goes beyond anything that man could imagine, could man could write and distort this book 
to say, going to heaven and sitting on a cloud, playing a harp, doing all the things that we're supposed to, you know, just going up there and looking at God, or what man considers to be in some religions, just going up there with 23 virgins. We're beyond all of that. The truth of the Bible shows us that, and we understand what Daniel, the seventh chapter, in verse 27 really means. Based upon the feast, then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High, and his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. That, brethren, is why you are here today. That is why you are keeping the Feast of Tabernacles. You are these saints. You are the holy ones, those very special people to both Jesus Christ and the Father.